0: Again, the simple guideline to use is, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other meaning. A big issue in prophecy where we need to apply this rule is in regard to Israel. Many think that the church has replaced Israel, and so whenever they read prophecies about Israel, they automatically assume that it must be fulfilled by the church. Of course, our natural tendency is to make everything about us. So even if something is clearly promised to Israel, the church world tends to just apply it to itself, while forgetting that the primary meaning must be for Israel. Replacement theologians say, if a prophecy predicts something good, then it's about the church. But if it predicts something bad, then it must be for Israel. Now, Israel is manifestly not the church, so literal interpretation means that prophecies to Israel will be fulfilled to Israel. If it's speaking about Israel, then the literal meaning must be for Israel. Therefore, God hasn't finished with Israel, and she is the focus of much end-time prophecy. When the Bible makes prophecies about Israel and promises to Israel, it means Israel. For example, consider the famous prophecy of Jeremiah 31.31, 31, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The fact that the church has entered into the blessing of the new covenant in Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 8, it doesn't mean that this prophecy in Jeremiah 31 will not be literally fulfilled to the house of Israel because this prophecy is primarily about the fact that God will remarry Israel through a new covenant. God married Israel, as it were, at Mount Sinai through the old covenant of Moses and he later divorced her because of her unfaithfulness. But he will remarry her at the second coming of Christ when all Israel will be saved and enter into the new covenant. As a nation, Israel rejected Jesus when he came the first time so as a nation she couldn't enter into the new covenant at that time however Jesus still established the new covenant in his blood and made it possible for all who receive him Jew or Gentile to enter into that new covenant this is the mystery since Christ is the seed of Abraham he could inherit all the covenant blessings of the Abrahamic covenant And when we believed in him, we were put in Christ. So through our union with Christ, we share with him in his covenant inheritance. So we can receive for ourselves all the prophecies and promises in the Old Testament which describe the blessings of the new covenant that God will make with Israel through the Messiah. Because in Christ, in the Messiah, we are in that same new covenant. Therefore, when Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This is actually talking about what God will do for Israel. But we can also apply it to ourselves. But we should not deny its original literal meaning, which is a promise to Israel. The fact that we can apply prophecies of the new covenant blessings to the church does not negate the literal fulfillment of these prophecies for the nation of Israel, which will happen when she will accept Jesus at his second coming, when all God's covenants and promises and prophecies to her will be fulfilled. So prophecies about Israel will be fulfilled by Israel. But it's also true that Israel is a type of the church and that the prophesied blessings for a future Israel under the new covenant also apply to the church under the new covenant. As Ephesians 1.3 says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the blessings of God are yes and amen in Christ. In replacement theology, The church in its pride claims that God has finished with Israel and that the church has permanently replaced her in God's purposes, although the Bible never said that. Indeed, it says the opposite. This is an important issue which I want to highlight as as it is such a crucial issue in the interpretation of Bible prophecy. Even when the Bible uses symbols, that does not mean we are free to interpret them any way we would like. The Bible always supplies the correct interpretation of each symbol. It always gives you the key to crack the code. Let me give you some examples of this. In Revelation 1, verse 12 to 16, John describes a vision of Christ. It says... Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded around the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white as like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. The seven golden lampstands and the seven stars in his hand are symbols, but we don't have to guess what they mean. We're not free to make up some meaning that suits us. The Bible will always interpret itself, so you must look elsewhere in the Bible to discover the meaning of the symbol. In this case, you don't have to go very far, for Revelation one twenty says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven lampstands are symbolic of the seven churches and the seven stars are symbolic of seven angels. Actually, angels is the Greek word angelos which also means messengers. So it's actually talking about the churches and the messengers or the pastors of these churches. The seven letters are written to the seven messengers of the churches. If the Lord wanted to communicate to angels, he would not need to send a letter through the Apostle John. Notice that what Christ says to these messengers in the letters, rebuking them of their sin, calling them to repent, encouraging them to be faithful and not to fear, shows clearly that he is talking to men rather than angels who are not capable of sin. Clearly, he holds these messengers accountable for what is happening in their churches, which again points to them being the leaders or pastors of these churches. So when the Bible uses a symbol, it also explains what that symbol means, often somewhere nearby in the text. By describing the church as a lampstand, the Bible is speaking volumes in a simple image. This describes the main purpose of the church, to be a witness to Christ. To shine the light of the gospel of Christ. Indeed, in the seven letters, he is judging these seven churches according to how well they have fulfilled this primary purpose of holding forth and living out the truth of God's word. And another interesting example of symbolism is Paul's thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. First of all, we have to decide if this was a literal, physical thorn in his flesh, or is he using symbolic language? We need to ask the question, does the passage make sense if it was a literal thorn? If he really had a physical thorn in his flesh, would he really pray to God for it to be removed? No, he would just pull it out himself, or get someone to do it for him. It clearly wasn't a literal thorn, so it must be a symbol. Since it's a symbol, we must ask the next question. What does it symbolize? At this point, many assume without justification that it represents a sickness, but we must let the Bible interpret itself rather than trust in our human understanding and reasoning. We need to try and find where this same symbol is used elsewhere in the Bible if we want to know what it really means, because God is consistent. In Numbers 33.55, God says to Moses, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it will come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, in your flesh. And they will trouble you in the land in which you live. You'll see the same kind of uh, phrase in Joshua 23.13. We have a similar expression, don't we? He's a pain in the neck. He's a thorn in my flesh. So a thorn in the flesh was a personality actively and physically opposing the progress of God's people. Paul even identified it in the same verse as a messenger or an angel of Satan. How could we miss that? There was an evil angel, you see, stirring up the people against Paul wherever he went to try and stop his ministry. And this is confirmed by the context of this passage. A few verses earlier in 2 Corinthians 11:23 to 33 Paul listed some of the many ways in which he had suffered harassment from those opposing him. So Paul was praying to God to deliver him from this enemy activity. So, applying correct rules of interpretation tells us that Paul's thorn was not a sickness, but an evil angel and people who were attacking him. Another interesting example of symbolism is in Revelation chapter 12, which describes a great sign in heaven. Revelation 12, verse 1 to 5 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We can easily identify the dragon because in verse 9 it says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So who is the woman? People have a few theories. Is it the church? Is it Mary? Is it Israel? Well, it's, it's not for us to guess we need to go and see where else in the Bible do we see a parallel symbol. We have to go to Genesis 37 and one of Joseph's dreams. Genesis 37 verse 9 says, Now he, Joseph, had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. The sun, moon, and 12 stars, you see, were Jacob, or Israel, his wife and his 12 sons. That's Joseph and his 11 brothers. And they became the 12 tribes of Israel. So clearly, this is a picture of the nation of Israel. And so the woman in Revelation chapter 12 is Israel. And Revelation 12 is describing how the Messiah came through Israel. She can't be the church for the Messiah brought forth the church, not the other way around. So when symbols are used, and it's obvious when something is symbolic, then search the Bible for what that symbol actually means. Let's apply the principle of literal interpretation to three classic scriptures. Test yourself to see if you really do take prophecy literally. The first of these scriptures is Isaiah 116 6-9 which says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Literally, this predicts a future age where the curse on the animal kingdom and on nature is lifted and things are returned to the way they were in the Garden of Eden. If we thought this would never literally happen, We would have to spiritualize this to mean that in the church there'll be all kinds of different people, some aggressive types like wolves and other gentle types like lambs. But we're all one in Christ, so we'll all get on together. I have no problem with that as a spiritual application to the church, but the plain literal sense makes perfect sense. When Jesus returns, he will take the curse out of nature and he will return it to its original harmony. So there won't be any predators anymore, and this will literally come to pass when Jesus reigns on the earth. The second of these three classic scriptures is Revelation 7, verse 1 to 8, which describes 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, whom God will seal in the tribulation. They will be anointed to spearhead the evangelism in the tribulation. For the rest of Revelation 7, describes the great harvest of souls from their ministry. Who are these 144,000? Do we take it literally as 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel? Or is this symbolic of the church? What about the claim of the Jehovah Witnesses, who say it's 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses? Again, we must ask, does the plain sense make sense? Yes, it does. Would the writer, John have understood it as 144,000 Jews? Surely it makes perfect sense that God would choose 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. Since the plain meaning makes sense, let's not try and invent some other meaning. Let's just believe that God means what he says and says what he means. The third of these three classic scriptures is the major test case of how a person interprets prophecy. In Revelation 19, we see Jesus return to earth in power and glory. Then Revelation 20, verse 1 to 7 says, Jesus will reign on earth for a thousand years, with Satan locked up in the pit. Let's read that. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or, and on their hand. And they, had, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. You see, six times it says a thousand years. So do we take these thousand years literally or symbolically of a long period of time, namely part or all of the church age? We must ask, Does the plain sense make sense? Does it make sense that Jesus will return to earth, establish his kingdom here and reign for a thousand years? It not only makes perfect sense but it agrees with many other prophecies about a future golden age when the Messiah will reign as king over all the earth. Therefore, there is no reason not to take it as a literal thousand years. If it makes sense literally, take it literally. Moreover, Applying it to the church age leads to contradictions. Has Satan really been so bound that he doesn't deceive the nations anymore? It's just one contradiction. So, we need to understand prophecy literally, in the same way that we should interpret the rest of the Bible according to its plain literal meaning. We are to discover its original meaning as communicated to the original hearers, and we are not free to invent other meanings. Although the New Testament brought fresh light to understand the Old Testament more fully, this does not give us the right to rewrite the Old Testament and redefine its terms as if it was written in error. We must uphold both Old and New Testaments as being equally the inspired Word of God. Thus the first reason we should interpret prophecy literally is that it's the only method that is consistent with our approach to the rest of Scripture. The second reason is that it is the only way to remain submitted to Scripture rather than making Scripture submit to our human reason and imagination. We are to take it in its plain meaning and not to add to it or take away from what it is literally saying. However else we may apply a prophecy, we must never rob it of its plain meaning. This is a serious issue. At the end of the book of Revelation is a strong warning about not adding or subtracting from its words. Revelation 22, 18 and 19, it says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. In other words, this is the Word of God and God requires us to accept it and submit to it as it stands. The only way to avoid getting on the wrong side of this warning is to take revelation according to its plain meaning. This is a direct warning to those tempted to not take it literally. By definition, a non-literal approach to interpreting prophecy involves taking away from what it is actually saying and adding to it meanings that are not there in the text. But we are simply to discover what it is saying in plain language and submit to it. Without literal interpretation, there is no way to know the real meaning and no control over how to interpret scripture the allegorical method of spiritualizing allows us to make it mean whatever we want, leaving the door open for uncontrolled interpretation and speculation. Literal interpretation is the only way we can bring our thoughts into submission to God's word. A third reason to take prophecy literally is the fact of fulfilled prophecy. Some 20% of Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled. How has it been fulfilled? Literally. One of the great proofs that Jesus is the Messiah is that he's already literally fulfilled many of the Messianic prophecies. For example, Micah 5.2 predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread. So non-literal interpreters would have said, he won't really be born in literal Bethlehem. It's symbolic because he will be the bread of life. So his birthplace is described here as the house of bread. But he was born in literal Bethlehem, showing that God means what he says. The same is true for all the many other fulfilled prophecies. They have been fulfilled literally. So why shouldn't the rest of the prophecies also be fulfilled literally? As it says in Numbers twenty-three nineteen, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? A fourth reason to interpret prophecy literally is this. How can you know that a prophecy has been fulfilled if it does not have a literal fulfillment? Suppose I give you a prophecy that someone's going to give you a £1,000 this week, and then you complain to me that it didn't come to pass. What would you think if I then said to you, You took it too literally. I just meant you would feel like a £1,000. Would you consider that fulfilled? the whole thing just becomes unsatisfying and meaningless if we're free to change the meaning and spiritualize it as we feel. Without literal interpretation, the study of prophecy loses its anchor and its objectivity. It becomes arbitrary. If someone predicts you'll get a job in Nottingham next month, but instead you get a job in Oxford, is the prophecy fulfilled? What would you say to someone who says, it is fulfilled, For Oxford is spiritual Nottingham. It's spiritual nonsense, of course. A fifth reason to take prophecy literally is that the rejection of literal interpretation is an attack on God's integrity. God has promised certain things for Israel and if you deny it will come to pass for Israel then you are putting a big question mark against God's integrity. If prophecy to Israel is not fulfilled literally to Israel, then God is a deceiver. Some say, God made these promises to Israel, but God has changed his mind, and now he gives the church all these blessings instead of Israel. What if God made promises to you, only to tell you later, I didn't mean you, Tom, I was giving the promise to someone else, spiritual Tom. If God is not faithful to his unconditional covenant promises to Israel but breaks his word to her, then we could have no assurance that he will be faithful to his promises to us. So God's integrity is at stake if he doesn't fulfill prophecy literally. The sixth reason for taking prophecy literally is that it works. You'll find that all of the prophecies fit together perfectly like a great jigsaw puzzle revealing a masterpiece if you just take them in their plain meaning. God's Word opens up to you in a wonderful way and it comes alive and that's what I want to show you in this series. In previous times, it was harder to believe that prophecy would be fulfilled literally. The idea of Israel coming back to her land and of the various events in the book of Revelation taking place must have seemed impossible. But today, it seems to be right up to date. As Bible believers, we have no excuse not to believe that it will all be literally fulfilled. The seventh reason to take prophecy literally is that Jesus always understood and interpreted prophecy literally. He did that himself. For example, Daniel 9.27 predicts how the Antichrist in the end times will set up the abomination of desolation in the temple. Now, in Matthew twenty-four fifteen, Jesus referred to this prophecy and indicates that it will be fulfilled literally and that it will then be assigned to Israel when it is fulfilled. The eighth reason to take prophecy literally is that the national rebirth of Israel in 1948 was a significant fulfillment of Bible prophecy and a sure proof that God fulfills prophecy literally. Israel had been scattered to the nations for almost 2,000 years, primarily because she rejected her Messiah. But yet God has not finished with Israel. Many prophecies predicted this scattering to the nations, but even more amazingly, they also predicted her regathering from all the nations back to her land to become a nation again in the end times. When certain courageous believers in the 18th and 19th centuries declared from Bible prophecy that Israel must be restored to a land, they were laughed at by those who didn't take prophecy literally, as it seemed to be so impossible. How could a nation be reborn after 1900 years? Such a thing had never been heard of. Yet through the fires and birth pains of the Holocaust, Israel came to birth, just as the Bible said. This was the greatest miracle of modern times, and a clear demonstration that God fulfills prophecy literally. The rebirth of Israel is the major sign that we are now living in the end times. So, interpreting prophecy literally is the foundational principle undergirding our whole study of Bible prophecy, and it's the first key to understanding Bible prophecy. With this established, we shall now be able to begin constructing the overall structure or framework for the great house of Bible prophecy. Next time, we'll make a start on this exciting project.